Come on and get it, honey. Why the getting's good, good, good. Hello and welcome to Unapologetically Judith Owen. This is the podcast from Judith Owen. Hi, Judith Owen. Hello, BB. And me, Bibi Lynch. Now, Judith, I'm not suggesting I'm obsessed with you or even a little in love. I mean, let's let the lawyers decide. But I have been watching, reading, listening to all your interviews about your latest incredible album, Come On and Get It. And what comes across loud and clear is the album is, yes, of course, a beautiful homage to and a celebration of the unsung, brilliantly talented women of 40s and 50s jazz and blues but it's also a celebration of how badass they were, their attitude, how unapologetic they were, and how powerful being unapologetic is. And that's what this series is talking about. And somewhere, Judith, where these women were especially unapologetic was when it came to singing about sex. Go on, say it. You say Say it. it. Say it. Owen, big, long, sliding thing. Well, you know, you say that... But if it's out of context, the, the listener doesn't realise that it is a truly um, a love poem uh, to a trombone player. And so if you take sure. it out of context, it reads yeah. like filth. Uh, yeah. It's filth. And I swear, I, there's no greater joy in this world than singing this filth. Because <laughs> what's funnier, when it's like all out on the plate, when it's gynecological, when it's a meat market, when everything's on display, it's kind of not funny. It's just like, you know, it's very Lucian Freud. Oh, that was that was high highbrow. Uh, but it's very Lucian Freud. But when things come from a place of innuendo, double entendre, wink of the eye, nod of the head, twinkle. We're, we're all in on the joke. And come on, what Brit doesn't love double oh, entendre? I'd like to come give on. you one. Is it? I didn't say that Excuse properly. Excuse me? I, I, I didn't deliver that properly because I couldn't remember the rest <laughs> of the, the, what I should have said. But, but regardless. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, I think Brits were built, the, the British Empire was built upon double entendre. <laughs> And God bless it, because I supposedly Vic, Queen Victoria was big into it. Um, we know Liz was massive fan um, of the Blackpool humour. So um, yeah, Phil total roused about. So it, the point is, I mean, I you know, screw the bloody um, woke me to death. You know, cancel whatever. Come on, people. Funny is funny is funny, and um, I happen to think that these women are incredible. 70 years on, this music is still making my audiences, me, my audiences, everyone that hears them, it's still making everybody smile. And that's a very young audience, by the way, a oh, very useful you. audience that I have listening to this. Bloody loving it. When you were saying, when we, when we were chatting in, in the introductory, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm ignoring your, your silence. When we were chatting in the introductory episode, um, <laughs> you were saying, no, even though they're filth, these lyrics, you play them straight. You got to, you, you have to, you have to play them straight. If you're, um, if you're singing a line like, you know, down on the beach when we walk by, you know, are the other girls giving him the eye? You've got to, thank you. You've got to sing them straight. Somewhere to hang your beach towel. Got to sing them straight because the joy is in playing yeah. it straight. And then having that look in your eye, which is just beautiful. <laughs> and, you know, I think, I think Julia Lee really, really was the queen of this stuff. 
her her songs. She it's a great story that she said to her, or rather her mother said to her when she was a kid, never sing a song that you would be ashamed to sing to me. And she spent the rest of her life doing exactly that. I mean, that became her life's work. That's 10 out of 10 right there. Tick. Tick, there's a woman. And she she refused to like do anything but. So Julia Lee and her boyfriends, name of her band, she she wrote these ridiculous, you know, all, all these um beef and big ripe tomatoes. <laughs> tomatoes. Tomatoes. You can't sing tomatoes. Tomatoes. All this beef and I wonder what that was about. Beef and tomatoes, <laughs> obviously. Then I, you know, King Size Papa just keeps giving. Keeps giving. I don't even need to say anything. King size papa, fine come brown on. Frame. But the one, um, now fine brown frame, uh, Nelly Lutcher is the first song I heard. And obviously I was so young. I mean, I said, obviously if you haven't heard this pod, you know, the, or the first pod, should I say, then you won't know that really that I was only like five, six years old when I heard it. Now I was obviously too young to, to know that this was sexual, but I, what I did know was that it was so much fun just in the way that she was singing. She, she was an extraordinarily, um, entertaining. This is coming from just hearing a 45. You could hear the fun mm-hmm. she was having with it. She was like, you could, you could see the mischievous and it, it was kind of coming out of the speakers. It was ridiculous. But, even I as a kid knew that this was, there was something naughty. There was something fun about it. We were all having a good time and having, but I, I honestly, and here's the irony. So I'm jumping around the room with my sister singing fine brown frame. Oh, he's got a fine brown frame. I mean, it's all about a woman lusting after a, one, a fit man that she's seen across the room, you know, who's, who's make, making her act like an idiot, like we all do when we see somebody that we're you know, just lose your cool, so good looking, come on, it's ridiculous. And she's describing it and it's brilliant. And it really gets that sense of, uh, I mean, talk about out there 70 years ago, a, a song about a woman lusting after a man, lusting after the most sexual man that she's seen that turns her inside out, inside out with, with nerves and silliness and like, you know, basically sexual joy. This is really groundbreaking stuff. Well, this is what I was going to say to you. So even if it was like a double entendre or it was, you know, it was, it was coyish, it's still an extraordinarily brave kind of road to go down, isn't it? And unapologetic to sing those kind of lyrics 70 years ago. How did they, how did they get away with it? They, uh, in Nelly's case, and that was a hit, that was a big, by, by the way, the reason why I got to hear it is the, is the traditional, of course, way, which is the African-American black artists came to Europe, came to Britain because they were mega stars in Britain. They were treated differently. It was a level playing field. There wasn't the racism. There wasn't the inequities. There was, I mean, this is pre-civil, uh, civil rights. You got to understand. So as their lives in America were, I mean, imagine it's one thing being a black male artist. She's a, a woman, a female artist. You know, it, it, this is an awful lot to be carrying with you, but uh, fine brown frame was a hit in Britain. It was a hit in America too, uh, but not as big as it was in Britain. And my father heard this and it was, she came over in 1950. She was so beloved, so just adored in Britain uh, that she was mobbed 
by her fans after her performances. She was playing at the Prince of Wales Theatre, a huge theatre. She was mobbed after each performance and had to be given a, a police guard, you know, to get her back to the hotel. This is extraordinary, extraordinary. But this, this was the time where in Britain, she was a star. She was walking through the front entrance. She was the queen. Come back to America, she's going through the kitchen. This is the reality. People, you know, people, I'm not sure, have a complete grasp on this. Uh, especially if you're not, you know, so young or that, that you, you've not been exposed to what things were like or you don't know the history of this. But America has a long history of not appreciating its greatest export, which is, of course, jazz, jazz, blues, everything that has become rock and roll. It, that, that's, you know, the Beatles wouldn't exist if not for all the music that they were hearing. They were hearing, you know, crazy for Little Richard, crazy for all this incredible R&B, you know, the, I mean, the blues basically, but it was R&B stuff at that time. And, it, you know, the Stones brought Howling Wolf over because they couldn't believe what they were hearing. They, they, were, they were in shock at how incredible it was. It was all the blues, the blues, the blues. And New Orleans is the birthplace of jazz. That's where blues came from. This is where it all comes from. So America has such a disregard for its greatest art form. It takes it for, for granted. Um, and it's both a cultural and a racial thing, uh, where it's, it's, it's always put really on, on a very low rung. The rest of the world is going crazy. You know, we were all going nuts for it. We're just like, we're in love with it. We love it. We just adore it. We want to be it. We want to be there. And so, so much of it, of course, is, you know, recreating it, making it ours, then selling it back. And so Nelly's Fine Brown Frame was a monster hit single. Imagine. I, I was very, very fortunate because I never, you know, my father never got to see her. He was just the biggest fan. But when I came to live in uh, California, when I came out to be with my husband, within like months of being there, I was already bored and realized that actually LA is truly one of the most unfriendly places. <laughs> Say it, dude. <laughs> oh God, screen earth. Unfriendly, unfriendly, only because it's like everything you have to like plan your, your drive, like a year ahead, you know, what, what can you, do we think the four or five in about two months will be, will be, what time should we go? Should we take extra food? Um, should we take like the red, should we tell the red cross that we're leaving? When, when should we send a search party out for me? If we don't come back, it's that bad. All right. You just don't, you just don't just go out and just, you know, say, oh, just, no. It's horrendous to circumnavigate. And I'm a, I'm a driver. I love all that shit. So I open up the calendar section of the LA Times and I see this incredible advert for one night only after 30 years of semi-retirement. Nelly Lutcher takes the stage. And I, I just thought, well, it can't be her. I mean, this has got to be some looky-likey type situation. You know, she can't be still alive. This was the late 90s. And, uh, and I, called up, I called up the club and said, can you just tell me how old this lady is? And they said... Oh, she's in her 80s. She's got grandchildren and everything. She used to be a big star. She was, she was quite famous actually in her time. And I was like, holy God. So I buy the tickets. I can't wait. I take Harry. Down we go. You know, it's a sort of uh, room. You know, that's broke my heart. You see, that's another thing. Just broke my heart. Well, she, she was playing and it wasn't full and all that crap. And anyway, she came out, killed. I mean, literally, she could have been 20 years old. I could not believe what I was seeing. And of course, she put this fine brow frame and I'm in tears. I'm in tears. I wasn't the unapologetic woman I am today. So the most I could do was to embrace her afterwards and say, you, 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 I have, you have no idea how much you changed my life, how much you affected my, my life, how much joy you brought to me and my family. If it was me today, I would have, I literally would have kidnapped her and taken her home and just, just asked her every question that I, you know what I mean? I would have, I mean, I would have treated her nicely and given her lots of cake 
and tea. But I, w- I would have, I would have asked her all those questions because, I mean, the woman was just, you know, she's the reason I am like I am. I, this was uh, shocking to me to be able to see her. And I kept thinking, oh my God, my dad would go, it's not really believe this. And we were on the phone for hours afterwards talking about this because he, he was in shock. All these years later, I'm so sad that I never got to ask those questions. And I'm like, oh, if I was the woman I am today, here's the great twist. Someone on my team, Kate, actually, she discovers that Nellie Lutch's granddaughter is living in Oakland, outside San Francisco. She's a teacher. I reach out to Kira, comes to see the first ever performance at, at Prez Hall here, Preservation Hall down in, down in New Orleans. I bring the family and then they come. And it's, she's the daughter of Nellie Lutch's son and his wife, her mom is there too and her husband. And now Kira tells me the stories I needed to hear. And one of them, which blows my mind, is how at the same age, generations later, she at five years old, five, six, was dancing around the house as her grandmother played Fine Brown Frame to her, singing along to the words, not knowing what they meant, but knowing that it was the most joyful, fun, wonderful thing she'd ever heard. And that gives me the bumps. That gives me the bumps. And I just saw her because I just did a show in, in Oakland and there was the family again. We spoke about this again. It was just, it, it's, it's an extraordinary and rare thing. You know, I had that second chance that sometimes happens in life where you think, oh, I missed it. And there it was. So yeah, it, it, and how she described her grandmother, of course, was the same thing, the twinkle in the eye, this precise, dynamic, elegant, powerful, strong, this tiny woman who like looked like she was six foot tall, of course, you know, that's the whole thing, the power of her. And she was so precise. She was such a pianist, such a unique uh, self-accompanist. And her whole style and vibe was very much about, you know, looking sideways from the piano at you, like, you know, we're in on this joke together. We know, we know. They were brilliant and saucy. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's not like it was Babs Windsor in a a triangle. These were, you know, and a hammer and, you know, God bless her. But it was, (laughs) but it was. Sorry, Babs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. God. Ricky. Ricky. But it was, no, but it it, was these, these, these incredible tools de force of music, musical talent that part of their shtick was being a bit saucy and a bit, I mean, they, they wouldn't have got away with those kind of lyrics unless they were incredibly talented, incredibly funny, incredibly smart, because there's nothing sexier. And they wouldn't have, the execs wouldn't have allowed it. It just wouldn't have happened. No, and it w- also wouldn't have, because remember, they were taking over, like, they were the bridge between, th- this was a period where nice girls were singing about romance. They were doing the Great American Songbook. They were being decorative. They were being fabulous on the band side. And then there's Ella, who's the queen. She can do no wrong, so just ignore everything. But put it this way, Ella's company, a record label, which I believe was Capital probably, or somebody at the time probably, pulled an album of hers that was all blues because it was a bit sauce. It was saucy. And they realized quickly that's not her brand. Her brand was not saucy sexual. Ella's brand was fucking greatest musician ever, greatest singer ever, F-bomb there. But also the most incredible romantic interpreter of the great American songbook. So they knew what Ella's gift was. Boy, the greatest gift any of us have heard. These women, you know, the, the, uh, it's interesting because Dinah, Dinah Washington, again, I was, I was going to say, you know, they, they, they were, they came after the Ma Rainey's, after the Bessie Smith's, after the shave them dry. I'm not saying lyrics from that. Nobody can make me sing that song. 
I've tried. My band want me to sing it. The gentlemen callers want me to sing it. I'm just too British. There comes a point that, well, I have to just cut, do a cut off. I have to stop there. There's a bar. I will not pass it. I'm not singing Shave Them Dry. If you want to hear that song, go on YouTube. You'll see what I mean. Terrifying. Dinah, Dinah Washington was this very rare creature who had the career that was for basically for everyone, was for white, was for black, was for everybody to enjoy. Mad About the Boy, all those kind of songs, fabulous, you know, very, you know, just gorgeous, all the very romantic stuff. And then she had the stuff that was, I mean, all the, 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 the ones that were really the most sexual, these are race records. These are ra- records that were for the black market. These were not for the, you know, delicate ears of white people who might be just like spinning off the street. You know, I mean, they might be crashing into walls and, and careening off, you know, off the freeway with shock. And children would be, you know, poisoned and have to stay home from school. I say that as a joke, but really that was the attitude, which was like, like it was, you know, the devil. Um, it's interesting, actually. It was a time where uh, the black church saw it as, as as devil music in a way, as did, um, you know, the sort of uh, terrified white people. And they had that in common where it was seen as just being, you know, too sexual, too scary. These women didn't give a shit. They were just sort of like, you know, I'm just – now, Nellie did it in a very subtle way, which meant that she could still have a hit with it and still go forward with that. Julia Lee, my man stands out, you know, all this beef and – Big ripe tomatoes. King size papa. Snatch and grab it. The spinach song about weed. She was deemed too racy for any radio. I mean, whether it be African American or what, it was, that was, that was, that was it. They couldn't, they wouldn't even play her on black radio. But the woman, she sold half a million of snatch and grab it, like out the box because it was in jukeboxes. They couldn't get it on the radio, but they put it in jukeboxes and that thing was played until the blood was coming out the speaker. You know, it's just like people loved it so much. Sold five, you know, 500, 500,000 right there, half a million. This takes, this takes serious balls. Now, and she was, you know, she was like most of these women and, and Julia Lee in particular in Kansas, in Kansas City, she was playing in, in clubs that women weren't even allowed in. These weren't, I'm talking, I'm not talking bump and grind. They were, I'm talking about like, you know, cocktail rooms, uh, clubs. They weren't like doing anything illegal or weird. It's just like women didn't go to them. They weren't seen as being, it wasn't polite enough. It wasn't okay. She is performing at them. So she is like basically taking the stand that I will be a woman in this place. I will be in here. I'm going to be here. It's an extraordinary thing. This, these were dangerous times for a woman to be both, you know, obviously African-American, but sexual. Oh, uh, and, and, and by the way, let's equate that to today. You know, we've spoken about that before, baby. Exactly. I was going to say, exactly what I was going to say, beautifully done. Cause exactly that. It's like, not only was it fearless, brave, um, out there appreciated, but you know, still took some balls, right? Crazy that they were singing that stuff way back then. And now Crazy that actually in terms of sexual rights, it feels like we are back way back then. The whole Roe versus Wade, and I'm sure people know what that is, but it's it's a legal case that across America that it was a landmark legal case in 73, all about abortion. And now the US Supreme Court, which is the nation's most senior legal body, has kind of overturned that right. And the conservative states are, are either definitely or considering introducing new abortion restrictions or bans. So in 2023, we've got the take... <laughs> that was going on 70 years ago. I mean, what's happened? 
2023, America is less progressive than Southern Ireland. I, I rest my case, my lad. I mean, we, we've gone from like, you know, the most Catholic nation who has had to put up with the most horrible cases of abuse of, the, of, of, being, of being punished by the religious, uh, you know, powers that have dominated and abused for all these years. And, that, and they've come out of it being exceedingly liberal, both when it comes, you know, when it comes to abortion, when it comes to same-sex marriages, when it comes to equal opportunity, when it comes to, you know, gender. It, it, it's sort of like, it, it's so wonderful, but of course they've been through hell, so they know of which they speak. America just is this strange uh, place that goes, uh, in a, it swings in a, in a big pendulum, you know, it goes from one extreme to another. It went from prohibition to let's booze it up and go nuts. You know, I mean, it just, it never, is, I've always said this is the most immoderate country I've ever experienced. And it's part of that that makes it so, uh, so attractive in a weird way, because it's just, it's a very immoderate place. You're totally right. And it's, it is depressing. And what, and it, it just seems like that everything that these women did, I don't think they did it as a kind of point to make that point. You know, they didn't do their music, I don't imagine, to, to be forward thinking and push the boundaries sexually. But it's something they did and they did it brilliantly. But that we've gone back is just so extraordinary. You and I have talked before about how they changed your life. The, these women twice and they changed everything if we take you out of the equation do we do you mean that they changed how sexuality and music are kind of morphed and seen or do you mean outside of music too i think for the doer for the performer and i think for the audience and i think you know somebody was very affected by um by these these women and there was, there was a group of them uh was uh i believe was uh, alicia keys and she spoke very very clearly about her role models, her idols. And you can hear that in her. You can hear it. You can hear that strength in her. You can hear that woman at the piano. You can hear that thing. And she's, uh, she's somebody that I think comes across as being kind of authentically herself. I, you know, I know, I, agree. I, I know nothing particularly, you know, about her personally, but I do think on stage, that's how she comes across. She's not like stripping it down. She's not taking it off. She's not being, um, you know, cause the thing about sexuality and these women is that they were, they were at a time where you didn't strip down, you know, you didn't take it off. You weren't looking like, like a stripper. Not that I have a problem with that. If that's what you want to do, if that's what, you know, that's how you feel it, do it, do it. But these women were at a time where you absolutely didn't do that. They were elegant. They were beautifully dressed. They had the furs and the stoles and the gowns and everything else. They were gorgeous. And they were, they were perhaps because of that, to me, because they were keeping it on. I think they were even more sexual. I mean, that's, that's something. And Alicia Keys is one of those people. You, you never see her in that, in that situation. She's not taking it off. She's not exposing it. She's got this power and sexuality about her that is just, you know, just a natural thing that's in her. I actually think mystery is a big part of sexuality. Confidence is sexy. We know this. You can be, you can be wearing your, your bloody, you know, thong. Um, and if you aren't a confident badass, you look about, you look as embarrassed and sexless as, as you could possibly be. But if you, you know, you can be wearing pop socks, you could be, you can be wearing Pops, no, you see, that will never work. Why would you say that? Just a mere mention of it. 
Oh, American time. <laughs> oh. Um, the day that you stop feeling sexy or are a sexual animal is the day you're dead. You know, it's like flirting is a big part of who we are. I mean, I'm a married woman. I'm a happily married woman. But when I stop flirting, I am a dead woman because I, I don't get it. It's like we do. We naturally flirt. It's one of the joys of life. Everybody does. When I'm on stage, I'm flirting with the entire audience and it's fabulous. And they're flirting back with me. That's what this music encourages is for us to feel that natural place, that graceful place of being a sexual animal. It doesn't mean, you know, you want to just literally just, you know, we're not what turning it into some, you know, orgy or something, but it's about, uh, it's, it's about connecting with that part of yourself, not in a, in a fearful way, but in a glorious celebration. Presenting it however you want to. Yes. And, and I'm, you know, I'm, I am suited up. I've got, I've got the, the Rita Hayworth hair and the, and the 1940s look and the man suit and the tie and the, that's to me a kind of, uh, it's, it's a very like gender crossing thing, but it's the way that I, my, the way I feel sexiest is a something strong, you know, something both male and female. And it's a hot performance. Let me tell you. Well, it's thank a whole you. Gig. Thank you. And well, and here's the funny thing about it. If I was wearing, I, I've, I've, I've worn gowns and I've done big band shows where I'm wearing ridiculous, like skin tight to the floor, ridiculous gowns. And I, I, and the honest truth is I don't feel as sexy when I'm like that as when I'm in this kind of strange male, female place, because I know that I, I'm actually sexier like that because I'm not obvious. You know, it's, it's that whole thing as well. Of course, if you want to have Phil and Grant on show, have Phil and Grant on show. If that's how you, that's how you want to be sexy, you, that's how you be sexy. Can we just explain who, can we explain who Phil and Grant oh, are? My pups. That's what BB calls her chestles. Okay. This is so British. I mean, we, neither of us can do say you, the name. Do you want Brett, me to guess the what word. I call my doof doof? <laughs> for, for all EastEnders fans out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's appalling. You're it's appalling. appalling. You're appalling. Oh, so this whole point of oh. we can be what we want and how we want to be, you know, sexy is sexy. And, and what these incredible women and what you're doing with your album, your show is saying, and another aspect, another way of doing it is, is, is to cover up if that's what you want to do is, but the sexy is the smart, is the confidence. However you find your confidence, that's, that's what, that's what you embrace, right? Totally. I always remember as, as a, being in school and feeling like an absolute duffer, you know, being feeling really like so I was just so clumsy and just, you know, as we all do, like, oh grief, I'm just like I'm not invited to the party of life. And I remember seeing this this girl who was a sort of few years ahead of me, and there was something about this about her, the way she walked, the way she carried herself. I don't know who had told her how or why, or if it was natural to her, but this girl is, no, I've never forgotten her. She, she was, she walked like she owned the world and it was not like, you know, it wasn't swagger. It wasn't arrogant. She had, was proud and her back was straight and she had the confidence. And I remember just looking at, her. I was, I, I idolized her because she had what again? It was like that's what I want to be. Now, what's extraordinary about being on stage and being this 
flirt who I never used to be because I've never really seen myself as being at all sexy. You see, I mean, that's the thing. Being able to be this other person and being able to, of course, it's me, but you know, I'm embodying this period, this look, this vibe. It gives me permission. These songs, these women, this look gives me permission to be absolutely as sexual as I want to be. And that's extraordinary because that's like, you know, actors having to, you know, you, you put the costume on, you wear the things, you put the things on, you can then be someone else. Isn't that how we all are really in life? It's that you need your armor, you need your, uh, you know, your, your, your little blanket that you can hold on to, that you can hide behind so you can be whatever you want to be, what's really inside. When I see vid- video of it, when I see video of myself, I, I, I see that. I see that power. I see the joy. I see the sexiness. I get it. What's your unapologetic message to these women that have given you this this gift? The greatest of thanks. The greatest of thanks. And and I, I, I'd hope that they know or that somehow they would rest assured that their legacy continues. You know, every, every one of them was so in control and confident and sexy in their own ways, in their very own different ways. You know, Blossom Deary wasn't somebody you would automatically say was a sexual creature. And yet, you know, Blossom's Blues, which is like my, one of my favorite songs, she says, she's this great line where she says, Ray Brown, famous bass player, Ray Brown told me I was built for speed. What a line. What a line. And it's coming out of the mouth of this, you know, this is sort of like librarian. It is, it's just like, what? So, not being funny, but Ray Brown used that line on me as well, but let's not dwell. Well, he did. He did. But he was uh, absolutely, what a flirt. Um, and then, by the way, let's just talk about, you started by talking about the big long sliding thing. <laughs> a ridiculous song of <laughs> such smut value. You cannot believe the brilliance of it. But there's this other song on the album called Long John Blues, which has to be heard to be believed. It's about visiting the dentist. Of course, the dentist is over seven foot tall. He has to be to be able to pull those teeth. But lines like, I've told him the pain was killing. He told me my cavity just needed filling. That's poetry. I know you're seizing up. That is poetry to some of us. (laughs) It's just like... (laughs) To the Welsh amongst us. It's just to the Welsh. It's so good. It's so damn good. And and it's like, it's not... Now, it's not being gratuitous. It's not saying it. Nobody's, you know, whatever. But man, is it oh, fun. Oh, Judith, that is so funny. Give me one more filthy line before I let you go. All right. Um, hang on. Let me think about this. There's got to be a really good one. I've got, I'll get a, a good one. Um, Julie London, who was such a pinup, was so sexual. She suffered for being just too good looking. But the the song of hers that make, I mean, everything sounds like it's dripping in sexuality that she did. But I had to include nice girls don't stay for breakfast because I just, I think that's one of the best punchlines I've ever heard in my life. The punchline is, is actually nice girls don't stay for breakfast. Please pass the gem. <laughs> Well, 
<laughs> I just love that. Oh my God, Judith Owen. That is absolutely hilarious. And why you are there, if you could just pass over the marmite, that'd be lovely. Um, yeah, please. Yes. Oh, I stay. That is it for yeah. this episode. We'll be back next week with another, of course, this time talking about, oh, this is interesting, how these women unapologetically supported each other and asking, do women today do the same? Huge thanks to you for listening and to you, my lovely friend Judith, for making this oral joy. And I did say oral joy possible. Don't forget to come, don't forget to come on and get us next week and to follow and give the series a review. Unapologetically, Judith Owen is produced by Pineapple Audio Production. And we will see you very, very soon. Bye.